on Wednesday at an event alongside the United Nations Human Rights Council meeting in Geneva, Frontline Defenders released a report on the killings of HRDs worldwide. Focusing on the six countries with the highest number of killings, and by that we mean targeted attacks, assassinations, or extrajudicial killing by the state or authorities. To bring you additional insight into this issue, Rights on the Line spoke with human rights defenders from Mexico, the Philippines, and Brazil, three of the six countries profiled in the report. People sometimes think that the situation is very complicated. That's Jim Lochran, head of the HRD Memorial Project, an online database documenting killings of HRDs across the globe and celebrating their lives and their work defending human rights. They look at what's happening in Colombia or in Brazil and, and how do you get to grips with it. But if you look at those six countries, the, the root causes are the same in every instance. It is that you have six countries which are run in the interests of powerful elites who control the economy, who control the political life of the country, uh, who control the military in many ways, uh, and the elected officers of the state. And they see any attempt to introduce equality, justice, fairness as a threat to their position. And so, um, in most cases, I would say, without fear of contradiction, that um, uh, it is the lack of political will, rather than, than the lack of money or the lack of resources, is at the root causing, cause of the killings. The report is based on original research by local organizations in the countries the report examines, which are Brazil, Honduras, Guatemala, Mexico, Colombia, and the Philippines, and draws the red thread, so to speak, helping readers grasp this issue on a global scale. I, I would have to say that you know this report is only a first step. Um, we are very conscious that it's, it's very difficult um, to get information from some areas. So we see, for example, in Brazil and Colombia, that increasingly it's human rights defenders in remote rural areas um, who are being killed, and that can be hard to document and to get information. Um, we're also conscious of the fact that, for example, one of the gaps doing this exercise, you, you collect all the information you can, but that process also shows you the gaps in your information. So it is very clear to me that we don't have a firm handle on the issue of killings in India. Um, I'm particularly concerned about the issue of Dalit rights activists. Um, and it can be very difficult to distinguish whether something is a hate crime or whether the killing was linked to the person's activism. And similarly, for example, in relation to killings of LGBT defenders, I think that is a major issue that we that we will need to look at. I think what 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 this what the Stop the Killings report bears out is the findings that we've seen in Frontline Defenders annual reports over the last three years, which is that um, the issue of killings disproportionately affects. Human rights defenders work on land rights, indigenous rights, and environmental rights. Laura Freyermuth works with human rights organization Comité Cereso, based in Mexico City. The thing with HRDs in Mexico is quite concerning because um, we do a documentation each year to to see which are the repression mechanisms that the Mexican state holds against human rights defenders here. And last year's, 2017, it showed that uh, it was um, the state's favorite mechanism to hold on to against human rights defenders. So it's quite interesting because in former years it had been um, the, um, enforced disappearance and now it's 
extrajudicial executions. HRDs have been killed in 16 of Mexico's 32 states. The states with the worst record are along the southwest coast, including Guerrero, Oaxaca, Jalisco, and Michoacan. State narratives blame killings on organized crime in those areas, which serves as a sort of smokescreen to hide state-sanctioned targeting of human rights defenders who are advocating against policies that damage the environment in the process of extracting natural resources. It's important for us to share some clarity because the state's narrative is to say that there are certain um, organized crime groups in the area that are uh, generating a violence uh, climate and that they are only uh, the state is only trying to to regain the territory which uh, what we have seen in reality uh, throughout uh, the relationship with several organizations with organized people throughout uh, documentation and many other actions we have seen that what's actually happening is that there are uh, there are certain state policies to control the territory in order for certain economic policies to take place, especially because uh, Mexico ha is quite rich in several natural resources. And this area of Mexico, which is quite rich in uh, a lot of uh, mining, water, uh, natural resources as uh, huge forests, I mean, it's uh, you have a lot to to pick from, and the way they are trying to explode them is with these uh, neoliberal policies that are quite aggressive, and in which people that are living there that see their their quality like their life quality affected, start to get organized and try to have some sort of human treatment, which is not much to ask, and to have a, a, a proper environment care and what happens is that these people that start to get organized are starting to get killed and that's when the state says it's not me it's the organized crime and what we have seen is that it is a state directly or uh, by third parties that do it with the acquiescence of the state so this is really really important because in Mexico the state has many mechanisms and a lot of narratives going on in which they are trying to um, not assume the responsibility they have first to guarantee the security of Mexicans or people who are in Mexico, but also um, they are denying the fact that they are doing directly or that they are allowing or mandating other third parties to do it uh, in their name. So this is quite interesting and it has to be said as that so there are no confusions because sometimes people are asking us like uh, if we are going to do something about organized crimes or uh, how do we deal with that and the thing is in reality we have seen that the connection between uh, organized crime and the Mexican state uh, police or military or the marine forces here are practically uh, super well connected. They act quite in coordination and obviously always against the, the people who are getting organized to defend their human rights. In combination with these narratives from the Mexican government, collusion from law enforcement at various levels prevents cases from being properly investigated and allows killings to continue with impunity and without consequence. Police officers delay cases from being reported and when they are, 
They're classified as murder rather than state-sanctioned violence. For this reason, advocates in Mexico are calling for these cases to be typified as extrajudicial executions. The, the thing is that local and federal authorities in general, what they do is they use uh, bureaucratic methods to delay justice. It's quite common that they do not want to, to, to signal this as a correct felony. They are always trying to say murder or even like, well, he just died. So for us, it's really important uh, to have a, a typification of the extrajudicial executions felony so they don't have or they have less uh, ways to um, tackle around the, on properly the, the issues. We think it's quite important and possible to start having these advocacy campaigns in the local arenas so... Um, some cases can be held as extrajudicial executions uh, once a judge used it and started um, describing it and having in its sentence some more descriptionary information of why he used that typification and why that is um, not only a human rights violation but also a felony committed by, by the Mexican state. Other judges might have more resources to more resources to 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 use that um, that tool, and that would mean that we could have clearer numbers on the the dimension of the state repression. One chilling example is that of the killing of 13-year-old Umberto Morales in February of 2017. This is one of the cases the Stop the Killings report examines in the chapter on Mexico. Umberto, whose family were active in advocating for land rights was shot at close range by members of a paramilitary group as he gathered wood near his home in the state of Chiapas, which, according to Laura, shortly follows Guerrero, Jalisco, Michoacan, and Oaxaca in terms of its number of killings. It's awful because it's really a close shot to the head. And um, what the state has done is saying first, this is a problem between communities. This, is, this has nothing to do with me. This is communities that do not have a good relationship uh, within themselves. So this is something that the people has to take care of because they are not being good citizens because they're fighting each other. So first, that's, that's the first lie. You know, like um, this, is, this has been proven to be a paramilitary group that lives and surrounds uh, the communities in chapels that are organized. And they do the dirty work of the state, but they have, they are financed, they are trained, they are commanded by state forces. Uh, second, what happened? The way the investigation has been held is ridiculous. I mean, um, it's quite common. They do not gather many evidence. They do not uh, make the people involved testify. It's quite common here in Mexico that even for a common felony, you go to the to the uh, MEP that we call, which is like the place where you go to to report a crime for there to start an investigation, and they always say like, "Oh, but I don't know which felony is that. Can you tell me the name of the felony, or are you sure it happened?" Or you know what? If you start this investigation, it's going to be quite long. So are you sure you have you want to do it? Uh, yeah, so it's always a delay of the of the justice. And um, what has happened in this case, for example, and it's quite representative of what they do in general, is 
um, not gathering the information required to clarify who was, yes, the, the material author of the assassination, but also who is the intellectual um, responsible of the assassination, because in that case, they will have to point out the authorities and the state. It's going to be a year now, and um, there is no results in this case, as it is, as there are, as there, as there's really no result in many of the HDR cases. What has been said again and again and again is that it's the people's fault um, for not getting along. Um, it's also been said that there's stigma for the victims of human rights violations. It's always these uh, these narrative of saying, "Well, that person must have been involved in something shady. If not, what what else would that have happened?" You know. The issue of killings, and specifically the issue of impunity in relation to state-sanctioned killings, is one of increasing concern for human rights defenders in Mexico. When we see the numbers. Uh, extrajudicial executions are much more frequent, not only than they used to be, but they are much more frequent compared to the other human rights violations that the state is doing against human rights defenders. Yet, it's quite important to say that this is worrying because it means uh, the state, when it when it calculates what it can do, it can it, it it shows that they they at least they think uh, that they can get away with it because it would have uh, a low cost. I mean the cost, as I was saying, the cost they have to pay for doing this will won't be as big uh, for them to have any repercussion in them or their or their actions. So this is quite important to have in mind because I know that. Um, these type of atrocities are happening all around the world, and this is not a competition. Actually, we can see that there are many similarities around the world, which is, as I was saying, uh, the connection between the state violence in order to to open the door or or path the way for economic uh, policies. But uh, it's quite important to keep an eye on Mexico because Mexican state is calculating it can get away with this. Alice de Marchi works with Justicia Global, an organization that supports human rights defenders in Brazil, where women, Black Brazilians, the economically disenfranchised, and members of the LGBTQ community are all at a higher risk for violence from authorities, but also as a backlash for human rights advocacy. In Brazil, when we talk about human rights defenders, we have a huge amount of groups and, and individuals that are located like in remote places and in the countryside. But when we talk about the urban scenery, you, you have to highlight how many black women, poor uh, families are on that field. And they're very fragilized because they are, they suffer a lot of prejudice because mm -hmm. there was a, a false uh, racial democracy. So we are all the time calling the attention for that. Mm -hmm. and bringing to accountability, I guess, the authorities and all the, especially the security forces, as they are huge violators, of, they, they are the major violators of that kind of uh, minorities. Mm -hmm. So that's something we, we do and we are having to do that quite a lot in this specific moment. I mean, 
We are based in Rio de Janeiro, and in Rio we are going through a, a federal military intervention right now, which is a very critical moment mm -hmm. uh, for all those uh, favela groups that struggle and fight for the end of the security of forces abuses. Earlier this year, Rights on the Line spoke with Raul Santiago, an HRD from one such favela group. A resident of the Complexo de Alamao, Raul is a founder of Paparetto, a collective of citizen journalists that work to document violations by police and security forces against residents of the favela. Just weeks later, Marielle Franco, local councilwoman WHRD, and native of another of Rio's favelas, Mare, was assassinated in Rio. That has made a... a a great fear to grow amongst the human rights defenders, mm -hmm. especially black women. And also a great impact on a a LGBTs, because mm -hmm. uh, Brazil is, as you might know, the country that kills the most of uh, LGBT. Uh, it's like on the top ranking place of, you know, countries that kill LGBTs, which is mm -hmm. quite really, 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 really uh, terrible. And we just don't have lots of uh, formal data on that mm -hmm. and we don't have enough policies and rights assured to that kind of minority so mm -hmm. that's also a big challenge we're having to face and as well again after Marielle's death the fear amongst human rights defenders of those groups uh, have increased because Marielle Franco as, Frank, as you know was a councilwoman mm -hmm. uh, left-wing um, party councilwoman mm -hmm. uh, feminist She was also a lesbian, and she was black, and, and she was uh, brought up in the, in the favela community. So that's all those ingredients just make it really difficult for human rights defenders to know where the next attack might come from. Mm -hmm. And we, we're not even, we haven't been clarified by the authorities until now. It's been over 60 days that she's been killed, and we still don't know who killed Marielle Franco and, uh, and the driver and Anderson. Yeah. So uh, that's really critical and that brings a, a very hostile environment for um, human rights defenders in all Brazil, but specifically in Rio. When it hit headlines in March, Marielle's death came as a huge surprise in Brazil and was widely denounced in the international human rights movement. That was a huge shock for everyone because that's like bringing... The, the risk really high for anyone else. I mean, mm -hmm. if they could shoot her in the way they did, why not, you know, killing one of us? Because actually Marielle was kind of one of us before she was a councilwoman. She was in the Human Rights um, Commission of the um, State Assembly of Rio. Mm -hmm. And she was just one of our companions. I mean, I can say she was a friend of mine. When they kill her in order to silence her, it's like they're taking a huge piece of us together with her. And the, the most shocking thing is she wasn't receiving direct threats beforehand. So that's also very worrying because it, it contributes to that sort of blurring uh, environment. So who did it? Well, is it probable that it happens again mm -hmm. to other women? So... 
Now, this year is an election year in Brazil, and the effects of her, her assassination are at the same time of great fear, but also of great mobilization. I mean, over 44 countries have shown their indignation uh, about that killing. So that was the positive side of it, like the huge mobilization that mm -hmm. it came after uh, his, her, their killing, because it was only, not only Marielle, but Anderson as well. And besides that, now some, I wouldn't say many, we hope many women, but some of them have already said that they are going to run for specific positions, politic uh, positions mm -hmm. as a sign of, okay, you thought you were killing and shutting up black women's voice, but actually you were just bringing more and more LGBT women, black women to, you know, want to occupy all those places, mm -hmm. so uh, all those positions. The question that remains is what methods of protection should be employed by marginalized groups in Brazil? How can people protect themselves? Particularly, how can people like Mariela, whose identity was an intersection of multiple points of oppression as a black woman, a queer woman, being from Rio's favelas, and being a human rights defender, protect themselves? It really, as we have, again, um, continental dimensions, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it could be approaching really different factors depending on where this one woman of color uh, LGBT da, 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 lives and, and according to the conflict she's facing. I mean, she could be a quilombola, which are the reminiscent um, people made slaves communities. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say slaves because they were made slaves. So yeah, I understand. Um, so those conflicts are, uh, I mean, th th women in Bahia that are quilombolas might be might look a lot like Marielle but they were facing very different conditions mm -hmm. so I guess regarding the, the fact that she came from a favela mm -hmm. it's all about also face I mean the best strategies to protect that kind of human uh, rights defender would be to uh, address the core reasons why these violations happen, which would be certainly uh, to deal and face the security policy and public security issues. I mean, Brazil, and if you look at Rio and Sao Paulo especially, have the, the polices that killed the most in the whole world. So mm -hmm. we have to face that, we have to change that. So it's not about only protecting and taking response initiatives, but actually facing and uh, dealing and proposing, create, not only creative, but the, 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 the alternatives and the initiatives we've been talking about for a long time uh -huh. uh, to change that reality. Mm -hmm. No more militarization. We really need to change that uh, mindset that is all about repression. We have to promote rights instead of repressing mm -hmm. also the 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 drug of a war which is not a drug against it's not a war against drugs it's actually a war against the poor and the african descendants and the mm -hmm. you know in the peripheric zone so uh, to address that and to make the message clear about the core 
causes of those of that those violations is key to actually prevent and protect more effectively the the, the human rights defenders. On a Skype call from Manila, Secretary-General of Karapatan, Christina Palabay, spoke with Rights on the Line about the situation of killings in the Philippines. Filipino human rights defenders uh, work in uh, mostly rural and indigenous areas, so they tackle issues concerning land rights uh, and indigenous people's right to uh, uh, their ancestral domains. In in the urban areas, workers in um, many trade unions, youth, and other professionals comprise the majority of those working on the defense of human rights. So uh, mainly it deals with economic justice issues, but at the same time, since especially under, under the current administration of President Rodrigo Duterte. If you've heard about state violence in the Philippines, you've probably heard of President Rodrigo Duterte, known for his violent and macho fascist policies, misogynist comments, and bloody war on drugs. He's been president for two years this month. Well, from the Duterte administration's own figures, we are looking at more than 20,000 victims of extrajudicial killings um, through the drug war campaign, the war on drugs campaign of President Duterte. So it spawns um, uh, the kind of climate of impunity that is so intense uh, that it uh, creates uh, a chilling effect, especially in uh, in urban poor areas, uh, where uh, the majority of the victims are uh, located. You know? The victims are actually a combination of uh, workers, um, those who work in the informal set- sector, uh, those who are um, accused or even on suspicion that they are drug um, peddlers or drug users. No? And uh, there are also documented cases wherein uh, innocent bystanders were um, affected or were victimized by the said uh, police campaigns against illegal drugs. So basically this, this campaign has um, worsened the uh, landscape uh, where human rights defenders work. And uh, uh, this, uh, of course, um, feeds into the whole uh, constriction uh, of uh, space, civil society space in the Philippines. While Duterte's administration has resulted in numerous human rights violations, the question of whether or not human rights defenders are specifically targeted remains open-ended, though Christina was not optimistic. Well, def- definitely, it's uh, one. It's a factor in uh, you know uh, worsening the kind of uh, situation where we are in. Secondly, uh, we think that it's a prelude. Uh, the war on drugs is a prelude to a uh, more brutal campaign, especially against those who um, criticize and those who oppose these forms of repressive policies by President Duterte. Like other countries, different parts of the Philippines face different challenges. In this case, the typical distinction between rural and urban experiences of state violence is exacerbated in the south of the country, which is currently under martial law. Well, um, geography is one thing. You know? um, I mean, access, it, it, 
it's also it also means access to information, access to um, modes of uh, communication, uh, especially to to the media and to uh, a broader public. You know? But what also impacts uh, on the difficulties faced by those working in the rural areas is the fact that in Mindanao, for example, the southern part of the country, uh, martial law is also imposed. So military rule um, exists. And there's, uh, because there's massive militarization, um, uh, there is massive presence of uh, military, of soldiers in communities. Of course, this, in, this affects how uh, the people will exercise you know, their right to um, to bring forth their uh, complaints, uh, you know, to, to seek redress mechanisms that, are, uh, that they have a right to. So um, I guess, yes, that's uh, a more apt description. It's more really difficult in the rural areas. Despite this climate, the human rights movement in the Philippines is very much alive, and efforts are being made to resist the current administration's crackdown on human rights. The Philippines has, has always had um, a very vibrant uh, civil society uh, and a vibrant people's movement. So there are various groups and individuals doing um, documentation and monitoring work uh, on the uh, said violations. There are efforts to uh, bring these cases to the attention of several uh, mechanisms, the Commission on Human Rights, the local courts, and up to the international mechanisms available. Um, but, uh, of course, the climate of impunity is there, and it's, it's hard to contend with, with a system, with an environment that, you know, literally breeds um, inequality and injustice. So uh, there is uh, much challenge for civil society uh, and the people's movement in the Philippines to uh, mount um, uh, advocacies that will really uh, enjoin the participation and the opposition of uh, the majority of the Filipino people. To close, we'll return to Jim Lochran, who compiled the report. Again, you can make it very complicated or you, or you can make it quite simple. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's quite simple. Mm-hmm. It is that, you know, whether it's a member of the LGBT community or whether it's an indigenous leader in a village who is defending the rights of, of his or her community, then it's about respect for them and the fact that, you know, the starting point of all of this is the Universal Declaration, which says all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. Mm-hmm. So if, if that means anything, then it means that you have to respect those people, you have to listen to them, you have to hear their voice, and, and that's built into the approach that Frontline Defenders tries to take, which is that we can't parachute in change or we can't present a magic formula. Mm-hmm. So it's by building relationships with the human rights defenders on the ground, um, it's listening to them as to what they think will make a difference and then how we can support them to make that happen. Frontline Defenders was founded in Dublin in 2001 to provide resources for the security and protection of human rights defenders at risk around the world. Rights on the Line is a new podcast produced in-house by Frontline Defenders to present the work, the struggles, and the perspectives of HRDs at risk. Special thanks for this episode go to Jim Lochran, Ali Sidamarchi, Christina Falabai, and Laura Freyermuth. For more information about the HRD Memorial, visit hrdmemorial.org.
to read the Stop the Killings report, go to frontlinedefenders.org reports. To hear previous episodes of Rights on the Line, please go to frontlinedefenders.org podcast. Our music is from Let's Start at the Beginning by Lee Rosevere.